You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. So today's conversation is with Paula Davis, who is a founder and CEO of the Stress and Resilience Institute, a training and consulting firm that partners with organizations to help them reduce burnout and build resilience at the team leader and organizational level. Um, She has a new book. It's called Beating Burnout at Work, Why Teams Hold the Secret to Well-Being and Resilience. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting DSAM'd. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next The corner of the highway that leads to the job At the desk by the boss with the elegant watch The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock Mark the moments till the ticking stops But over time Paula Davis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kelly. I'm so excited to be here for so many reasons. All right. Well, I can't wait. There's a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about, but I want to start with where you start the book by telling your own burnout story, which happened during what became the last year of your law practice, right? Yes. And I, uh, it was quite an experience for me because I didn't know what burnout was. Um, if you had told me the name burnout, I would have probably cobbled together some sort of kind of definition for you, but I didn't really understand that that was the label of what I was experiencing. Um, Certainly I had experienced stress before as a practicing lawyer. This was something completely different. Like I was chronically physically and emotionally exhausted. Nothing that I did ever seemed to like refill or replenish the tank. Um, Also really importantly is I was chronically cynical, like everyone and everything just really annoyed me and bugged me. And that was definitely not my personality, but it was to the point where I just wanted to be left alone in my office. Like, please don't, don't come and find me. Um, And then to my clients, especially, I mean, as a real estate lawyer, my task, my commercial real estate lawyer, my task was to help my business clients solve very expensive and difficult challenges. And, and outwardly, I was always very professional with them, but inwardly there was a lot of eye rolling going on thinking, you know, are you really going to listen to my advice? Probably not. Do we have to have this conversation? Um, That was the mentality that I, that I had created. Um, And then that led to just a sense of lost impact, starting to think, why bother? Who cares a lot about my work? Um, Is this really what I meant to do? And then I started to obviously explore another path. And you saw like more than a half dozen doctors. What, what, what did they say? 
Yeah. So what didn't they say? Right. So where I ended my burnout is not where I started with my burnout. So burnout exists on a, on a sort of a spectrum or a continuum. And so when I first started my burnout, it was more like, yeah, I'm rolling into work 20 minutes later than I normally would not going out to as many lunches with colleagues and, and, you know, not as many Friday night beverage sort of outings and things like that. Um, and where I ended with my burnout is that I was getting panic attacks almost um, every day. I remember having to sort of jolt out of, you know, a couple of meetings because I could feel one coming on. Um, I uh, was in the emergency room twice um, with really bad stomach aches because of, of the stress. And so that's where the, your question about the doctors comes yeah. in. Um, they, I, I think because a lot of physicians, feel a sense of burnout and stress also, it probably was just, you know, for them, it's like just something people live with. And so never, they never thought to ask me about work stress or how work mm. was doing, or just generally how's life going. Um, Cause I was at a point where if they had, it, I probably, I may have startled them. I would have just burst into tears and it like just dumped the whole thing about what I, what I had been carrying around with me. So, um, so most of it, it was just very medically, you know, diagnosable stuff that that we went through no no other types of how you doing kind of questions well it seems obvious that there's a burnout epidemic in this country you cite some pretty alarming statistics up to 50 percent of physicians experiencing burnout and 96 percent of senior leaders report feeling burned out to some degree so i reported this statistic to my boss parisa jalili um and she laughed with what i would call both appreciatively and depressingly (laughs) (laughs) And and this has been this theme over the last like week as I've been reading parts of the book, preparing for our podcast and Parisa's uh, office is across from mine. And I would go in with something like this and she'd be like, yes, this, because, you know, Second City, like we completely had to reduce, we closed, we have new owners, we're now rebuilding. It's like, it is a lot of pressure and she's doing a lot of this work. And, you know, I'm, I'm afraid she's getting burned out and she is too. Yeah, no, it, it, it is. And I, I think, you know, that's one of one of the more common questions is that how when, when we're busy, and we're, we're focused in all of these other areas and aspects of, you know, our world, how, how do we pay attention to this? Because yeah, it's like, I realize it's going on, but you want me to do what about it? Like, yeah, sorry, I have, you know, 17 people I have to call back, and I have a big to do list. And, and what am I kind of what am I supposed to do about it? But I think um, in the statistics that I that I shared are all pre pandemic. So I feel like, wow. Yes. So I feel, I feel like that should be an aha moment for people, right? That the the pandemic didn't cause this problem. It existed in a big way before the pandemic. A lot of us were struggling. The -hmm. pandemic came along and just ripped the bandaid off and kind of revealed where we've all sort of been and then added a little bit of fuel to the fire with it. And you write in the beginning here, quote, telling people to take Friday off or take a vacation will not alleviate burnout. No. And this is um, one of the biggest messages that I hope to get across to folks, especially leaders, is that um, burnout is not a synonymous word with just general stress. So in order for us to just deal with everyday stress and, and deal with a lot of whatever it is that we have on our plate, taking those moments of pause is important. But if somebody is burned out or we're truly talking about burnout, what we know from the research is that you can say, take a Friday off, you can say, go on vacation, and people will feel better when they go on vacation because they're outside of the work environment. But then you bring them back into the work environment, and usually within a couple of weeks, they've bounced back up to their pre-vacation burnout rates. So it's not, you're not, you're just giving a band-aid with those strategies. You're not providing any sort of real solution. 
So let's get into that because the, you know, in, certainly I talk about in improvisation, you don't take one class and then suddenly you're, you know, you're all good. That it's like going to a gym, right? You don't go once. Uh, and so you talk about this holistic approach. And I remember one of, I did a TEDx talk up at, uh, in Rochester at the Mayo uh, Clinic mm-hmm. and, and a lot of physicians were on the, on the bill as well. And the Mayo Clinic has developed this sort of, what you a listen, act, develop. Can you talk about that, that approach? Yes. So, so it, I really wanted to give voice to the great work that the Mayo Clinic is doing because, you know, as you mentioned in healthcare, healthcare is really our, our shining beacon in terms of what we know about burnout. They've by far done the most empirical studies to sort of get our arms around, you know, scientifically what is burnout, how it manifests in the workplace and things like that. Um, and clearly we don't want our physicians and our nurses and our healthcare professionals feeling burned out as they're coming in to like operate on us and, you know, so d- deal with all of our medical issues. And so they really are at the forefront of the science around not only what causes burnout in organizations, but also what, what can they start to do to address it? And so they developed really this holistic approach, very much focused with and starting with the leaders within the organization where, um, you know, they are, are encouraged to assess burnout rates within their teams, really get their arms around exactly what the extent of the problem is, uh, understanding what that means. They're empowered then to come up with creative solutions to deal with some of those issues. They can address their teams in certain ways. Um, they, they have the latitude to be able to feel like they can fix the issue once they get their arms around what that is. And so um, giving them the space and the tools to be able to do that, in addition to really educating their leaders about what burnout is, about not, not only that, but what does it mean to be a good leader? Yeah. You know, leading in a way that's going to create an environment that will make burnout less likely to happen is a huge piece of the puzzle. And so they've really spent a lot of time and resources you know, dedicated to that piece as well. And they've noticed um, they've been able to, you know, not wholly reverse, you know, the burnout within their organization, but their numbers are going in the right direction compared to most of healthcare, which is not. So really interesting outcomes. Yeah. And you talk in here too, this surprised me and it shouldn't given the fact that I talk all the time about the importance of uh, ensembles is what we call them. Teams is what other people call them, but that an organizational approach is actually more effective than an individual approach which might seem counterintuitive to people. It does seem counterintuitive, especially with the burnout conversation, because I think we think intuitively as burnout being an individual problem. That's how we see it expressed. And really what I like to tell people is that burnout is the individual manifestation of a workplace culture or a systemic issue. So it's something going on within the system or the culture that is creating and resulting in an individual feeling this sense of exhaustion and cynicism and and sense of lost impact. But what we do is we go, oh, individual, you're having a problem. Let's give you individual strategies to deal with it. And it's not bad necessarily. It's not wrong. I just um, wrote an article on my Forbes blog called Why You Can't Yoga Your Way Out of Burnout. (laughs) <laughs> and how we tend to send that message to folks that, you know, just, just try these basic self-care, self-help strategies, which again are a really important basic layer for our own mental health and, and well-being. But when we talk about burnout, it's a different type of thing in that, that the individual is part of the system. So we're not going to forget about it, but we also have to say yes. And we have to say, and it's the rest of the the organization and the components that go into it that we have to be talking about as well. So uh, this made me think when you were talking about systems, uh, I just interviewed Luke Burgess. He has a book called Wanting, and he has a quote from the author, James Clear, which says, quote, we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. 
Oh, Isn't yeah. that elegant? I love that. I love yeah. that. You're going to have to like email me that or something. I, I will. <laughs> I, have to, I, keep a, I keep a book of quotes. Mm-hmm. And so that one's, going, that one's going in there. And the next time I write an article about this, I'm going to have to cite I'm going to have to cite that, but, but yeah, so for me, um, you know, it's nice because I know that the individual approach isn't enough. It's an, it's an interesting first step, but the research is very clear that the organizational approach is the way we have to go. But I also have to be able to translate that to organizations and make it work. So I can't just walk into an organization and say, Hey, organization, let's just change because that's not going to work. Um, So the teams piece, they're little mini systems within the big system. So if we can, if we can think about how we can get the little mini systems, creating an environment that is less likely to cause burnout, that that can have ripple effects. Because I've seen the research too, around like psychological safety and other stuff that, that it really is team oriented. Like you can have a, a dysfunctional organization in which you have an, a very functional team inside of it. And, and that's along the same research that people don't leave, you know, their jobs, they, they leave their bosses, right? Their so bosses. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so about five years ago or so, my wife and I were invited by Scott Barry Kaufman and Martin Seligman uh, to curate uh, what they call Genius Weekends. So they had done design thinking and they wanted to do comedy and improvisation. So we got friends of ours who wrote for Silent Live and the, the our original editor of The Onion uh, in. And, and in the course of this like weekend, uh, Seligman started talking to me about the work he does with the U.S. Army. Yes. Like, you do this. Yes. Yes. This, this, this program changed my life and I am not using that in a, in, to, in a, you know, hyperbolic way. This, this program really literally did change my life. And I was, um, th- this was in the late 2000s, early to, you know, like around 2010 to 2014 or so, where this program mm-hmm. was really taking hold, um, a, a program with the United States Army and the University of Pennsylvania um, called Comprehensive Soldier and Family Fitness. So the goal of the program was to train and to teach resilience skills to senior non-commissioned officers officers, their family members, um, Department of the Army civilians and other folks, um, not only to deliver them the skills, but to teach them how to teach the skills back in their units. So it was very much a, we want to, we want the system again to be fortified. It's not just going to be individual training. It's how do we then impart it to the rest of the system? And so the, the program was just fascinating and phenomenal. And um, I was very intimidated working with, you know, I was just, I just stopped my law practice. I mean, I didn't know anything about the military and, mm-hmm. um, you know, drill sergeants were really intimidating to me. And so, um, but just hearing their stories and, you know, hearing what they had been through was very inspiring to me and is the thing that really helped me to start talking about my own burnout story more. Cause I, I really, I was stuffing that I hadn't, I wasn't really keen to bring that up a whole, a whole lot. And yeah. so I, I would, be, I would be very different and my business would look very different if I had not had that experience. So um, just phenomenal outcomes from that, from that program. Yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting that the U.S. that the Army Armed Forces really have moved into far more in the cutting edge of um, what we know from science uh, about how the hierarchies don't work, command and control doesn't work, and it's so funny because I mean, there's nothing more command and control than, than the armed forces. Yet they recognize we live in this VUCA world, 
And, and that to do that, when you have decentralized systems, you, you really need this, how we refer to it as leadership at every level. I think you use that term too, or, or, or um, mm-hmm. uh, General George Casey, who you cite also did, so that, you, so that everyone is sort of informing each other. And I was on a call earlier today with a professor at the University of Chicago who was talking about um, th- those, you know, after they do their missions where they all get together and clean their rifles and then talk about the mission. And, this, and, and sometimes the, the, the person who's in charge will out, be outside the circle so that they can sort of just really tell the truth to each other. And, yes. and this is like, oh, I wish people did this in business. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish it happened in business all the time. And in fact, the, the kind of what you're talking about is either or a version of what the Army calls an after action review That's um, it. And, and, and AAR. And, and I um, talk about that as a skill now in almost every one of my presentations that how important it is just to come together as a team to, to debrief. I call it, you know, debriefing. So it sounds a little bit less um, military. But there's now some some studies uh, and just in the last few years, some studies that have shown that teams who do that on a regular basis, who come together in these moments to debrief. And it doesn't have to be anything hugely complex. It can just be saying, you know, what did we intend to do? What was the result? What would we do differently? What went well? Just basic questions like that. Um, teams who do that regularly have lower rates of burnout. And it's in part because there's a sense of transparency that happens. We sort of put it on the table. What happened? What did we do? What was my role? I leave feeling better understood. I leave with more clarity about what happened. And I leave feeling supported. Like people have my back. I know that, you know, I was part of a team that did something that mattered. And I can go off on my merry way now and, and re-team with a different team or, or continue to work with the current team. So it's a very powerful strategy. Um, we have a program that we started at the University of Chicago called the Second Science Project that looks at behavioral science through the lens of improvisation. And when we started it, uh, uh, Nick Epley, uh, one of our lead researchers, had just finished this study that you cite in the book, which is, yeah. which is great, became very foundational to our work. Uh, of that the 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 idea here uh, and you can tell about the study but the larger idea that we, is that people really um uh, underestimate uh their level of of wanting and thriving in connecting with others and that can even be strangers oh it can totally be strangers and his study is fascinating on so many different respects but I, it's counterintuitive because i think you know what is the thing you know you pile into the into the L if you're in Chicago or, or wherever, whatever mass transit system you're, you're in, which is where the study kind of took place. And you think you're, I do it all the time when I, I live in Milwaukee and I work a lot in Chicago and I would yeah. you know, take the train back and forth. And I always want the seat by myself and I kind of want to be by myself and don't bother me. And they actually looked, looked at that and people thought that you would have a more rejuvenating and restorative experience if, if you were just kept to yourself and nobody bothered you. And what they found was actually the opposite, that it's when you sit down and you make those conversations with complete strangers even, and you you know have a chit chat and it doesn't have to be long, that you feel just a sense of connection and a much more of a sense of restoration and rejuvenation um, than if you would have just kept to yourself. So. Yeah, I mean, I have friend, I have literal, well, they're, they're social media friends at this point, but I, it's because I met them on an airplane and we, and we stay in touch and we like, and we celebrate each other's wins and we, they support when we have our losses. And it's like, that, that's, I mean, you know, I'm an especially chatty human. Um, interesting <laughs> here too, you wrote, quote, one thing that impedes the ability to communicate is the human tendency to think we're right. Yes. That's powerful. Yes. And, um, you know, thinking that we're right. So if you, if you, if you're going in position within the context of a conversation with somebody is that I'm right about this. 
Um, it, you're not going to do one of the things that I love, which is called listen to learn. Um, yeah. I'm going in with my position and I'm right. And it's going to shut down a whole host of things, but it's going to shut down my ability to listen, to learn. It's going to shut down my ability to have a deeper conversation with you, to open up the door to empathy, which um, I use my colleagues phrase, humble curiosity um, to describe that. It's one of my favorite phrases. Um, and I think it is, kind of what impedes us from getting to a different level with some of some of the you know conversations that we should probably be having in our country about a whole host of topics it's it's, it's that you know uh, mentality of i'm right and you're wrong or i've got this figured out and the issues that we're talking about in that realm are just so complex and so nuanced that it's it's just so hard for you to have had it figured out you just have a position on it but there are other ways to think about things so yeah and and all it takes is one context shift and everything's different. Everything's and, different. And science, you know, like people are like, well, the science is wrong. And like science is always wrong until it's right again. And that's yeah. always wrong. I mean, this is <laughs> like fundamentally how things are designed. Um, yes. you, you have a chapter, uh, mental strength, uh, and you open that chapter by writing, quote, take a moment and think about a milkshake. Yes. Um, I think our listeners are probably wondering what happens after they think about the milkshake. <laughs> So, so um, Aliyah Crum and her colleagues are doing some fascinating work around mindset and how um, showing and isolating that really just simply what it comes down to is how we can think about something, really how we think about a situation, how we think about a milkshake, how we think about anything really has downstream consequences for our resilience, our well-being, levels of depression, even anxiety. Um, and what she ended up doing in this really in her colleagues in this unique study was um, showing people um, uh, milkshakes. And so one one milkshake little pamphlet that they showed had made it sound like this milkshake was like really decadent and really delicious. And it's a kind of milkshake you just totally want to savor. And it even had the calories on there. It was like 620 calories. And they made it sound, even gave it a name that it was this glorious milkshake. Um, and then they had a second pamphlet or a little flyer showing another milkshake. And literally it was the exact same thing, but they changed all of the wording and they made it sound like it was this low cal milkshake. And the, you know, the calorie count was like 145 instead of 620. And what they found is that just simply that wording, just simply how we think about whether a milkshake is decadent or whether a milkshake is more in the healthy end of the equation influenced how hungry we, we, we were and how, mm. um, how much our level of ghrelin that, um, that we had, um, you know, thinking about hunger levels um, it was, it was influenced just simply by how something was written, even though the milkshake that they were talking about was literally the identical and same thing. So this is the power of framing. I mean, this this is why framing is so hugely important. So it's and it's not just from marketing, right? We frame situations, we frame our experiences, and you know, it's you know, it's it's why there's there's always a lot of science to back up the fake it till you make it kind of thing. Because you know, like if if you can walk in with a little bit of that sort of confidence that you know this is this is going to work out, that it's it's got a greater chance probably of working out than if you walk in with like this is not going to work out. Exactly. Right. How we think about situations, how we frame situations, um, how we understand situations to be if we're clouding situations because we're jumping to conclusions or we're mind reading about something or we're carrying in, um, you know, 
something that's happened in a prior, you know, conversation and we're blaming ourselves for the situation or things like that all impact and influence how we're addressing and dealing with situations in an ongoing basis. And that has a lot of um, ramifications for how our teams function. And so I think that mental strengths piece is one of my, one of my personal favorite chapters in part because it's been such an integral um, component of my own resilience practice, but really is an under talked about um, strategy when it comes to the burnout prevention conversation and the team's conversation too. Um, and this is, I mean, this is the problem with social media, right? Cause you know, humans have this bias towards negative thinking and the algorithms thrive when they go negative. Um, so all the incentives, and we've talked about this a bunch on the podcast, cause it just, I'm obsessed by it. All the incentives for how they make their money are by stimulating that negativity. Yes. I mean, so the, the negative, we are hardwired as human beings to um, seek out and remember and notice negative information. Uh, think, you know, way back in the day, it, that served us well. And from an evolutionary standpoint, we're here because our ancestors thought that way. But today, <laughs> There, there's sort of less of a need for that wiring. We're not going to walk outside and have to be worried about, you know, a big saber tooth tiger attacking us. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but we still carry that with us and it, um, it really can get in our way. And I talk about that in the context of, you know, one of the more powerful strategies that teams and people can use is sharing successes and sharing good news and sharing wins. And when we do that, it oftentimes lands really flat because we're just not paying attention to it because we're not wired that way. Hmm. Uh, You also talk about uh, the resources uh, here and you talk about tangible and intangible resources. I think everyone understands what a tangible resource would be. What's an intangible resource? So intangible resources are um, things like your strengths. Um, Are you bringing kindness to the table? Do you have a great sense of humor that's getting lost because you don't feel like you can show up to your as yourself? Um, It's the internal and external partnerships that you've cultivated within your organization. Um, It's things like that, that, that oftentimes we aren't necessarily tapping into in the resource conversation because we, we boil everything down to personnel, you know, sort of finances, things like that. And we're forgetting about kind of the humanness um, resources and strengths that we um, bring to the table when it comes to a lot of our work. And that's really, honestly, one of the biggest themes that's been coming up for me in a lot of my discussions and programs. And people are just actively saying, in this transition back to work, I really want you organization to recognize that I am a whole person. I am here and I'm happy to do great work for you and do a lot of work for you and work late hours even. But I want you to recognize that I'm bringing things to the table, that I am more than just how many hours that I'm working, that I have a family or I have hobbies or I have interests and that's important for me as well. So... You have a, a, a lovely line in the book, which quote, showing that you're human has never been more important than it is right now. Um, it's true for all of us. I think especially true for leaders. Oh, especially true for leaders. And it's still, I mean, even though we've lived through, you know, and are living through, I think this great psychological experiment called the pandemic, um, you know, a lot of leaders still see, um, you know, saying, I don't know, or I'm not sure how we're going to get through this. Um, obviously, this is new, and I don't have all of the answers. I might need to rely on you for some things. Really hard to say, because it flies in the face, I think, of oftentimes how we feel the world should operate when it comes to what a leader is and who they are. And so I think that anytime a leader can put themselves out there 
with even a smidge of a little bit of, of vulnerability and just say, I'm not sure, um, or, or however they're going to phrase it, it creates such tremendous buy-in from people who hear that message. It feels really like vulnerability and weakness to say it, but it's received as courage to the team um, and really can cement the that sense of cohesion and trust and psychological safety. And I think becomes one of the bigger entry points for leaders, I think coming back into these new workplace contexts to really pay attention to that. You don't have to share like the most deeply private story ever. It's just, it's just a simple, I'm not sure. What do you guys think? You know, yeah. kind of a, kind of a message, you know, but sometimes too, those big reveals, I, I, I was, I spoke at and attended a, a virtual um, a summit that the Cleveland clinic put on. Um, and Kevin Love, the basketball player did a session on mental health because he has struggled with depression and just having him do that. I, I, I can't, and I've never struggled with that, but i some very people who are very close to me have, they just, it's like, the, I imagine the power of someone seeing that and then feeling like, Oh, I, I, I I'm seen now. Like, uh, you know, that, that, that is really important. The more that people in leadership positions can normalize this stuff, which is very normal, very normal. It's what we share as humans. I, I think it changes the game. Well, and this is, this is back to, you know, what we talked about at the beginning about how, I mean, very honestly, I don't think I would be the, the person that I am right now and have the business that I have that looks the way that it looks were it not for me being very inspired with the soldier stories. Yeah. They shared a whole range of stories about things that they overcame and, and tackled. And none of it had to do with burnout, but it was all very much that very inspiring. And I took a lot of messages. There are always themes and little pieces, even if it's not the same exact circumstance that we can all apply to our own lives. Cause we've all been through challenges and struggles at all sorts of levels. Um, and it doesn't have to be the same struggle, but just hearing that you overcame it. Wow. Okay. Then that's, that makes me feel like I'm less alone and I can overcome it too. Yeah. And then I can have the courage to say something as well. And so it, the ripple effects are profound. Uh, so I'm going to ask you in a second for a yes and story, which is how we always end the podcast. But before we do that, I just wrote the end of my notes and I didn't put quotes around them, but they're all things that you say in the book. And it was, and you mentioned it before, humble curiosity, mm -hmm. try stuff prepare to pivot, collaborate, and ask for help. Like, yeah, that, that could have been the book. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be like the, the second version. of the Just book. that. <laughs> I love all of that. Cause it's, it's, it, it is. And, and when you, what I love about it is it all, it's all like, like you're not alone. And, and this book spreads this message that we need to think about us in connection to others. And that's why this team approach, you know, and, and team resilience and team efficacy w goes down to the individuals because the team is made up of ind individuals. But in our work, we, we approach this a lot, which is like, we are an ensemble, like you, we are there to support each other. And my job is to make you look good. That my, when I'm doing this podcast, my job is to make you look like the most brilliant human being in the world. And if you do that, you, you will then set me up for success. And it's like, it's just, the, it's just a better way to be. It is. And I, I love those phrases. And as you were just re-saying re those to me, um, even though I wrote them, it, was, it, hit, it struck me because um, when, I, I, when I wrote that, we were in a very different place with regard to the pandemic. And now I think about all of the people who I've talked about who are having these really in-depth, high-level, complex conversations about how we get back to work. And I feel like they're missing the fact that this is a big experiment. We're entering, 
we've never done this before. No. And you're just going to have to try some stuff out. And some of it's going to work and some of it's not going to work. And what doesn't work, you're going to have to let go of pretty quickly and pivot and come up with a plan B and try that out and see if that sticks. And we're going to do it together and we're going to try, we're going to try and figure it out. But I still, I'm hearing this angst about, you know, we have to have a, a, a definitive answer and we have to know what we're doing. And it's, it, it's just probably it's not going to happen. Especially now we're, now we're in this other pivot, right. Which is the, the mask thing and like, no, yes. like trying to negotiate. So I'm back at the office and trying to negotiate everyone's comfort level. I'm completely vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel comfortable w- w- without it. Uh, but what I do is I ask first. It's like, hey, where are you at? What's your level of comfort? Because I will, I will adjust myself to your level of comfort. And if everyone did that, we wouldn't have these problems. No, no, we no, we wouldn't. And you know, I think about it too because I have a five-year-old, and and how she's still, she's got a different set of protocols with her and, and, yep. you know, trying to explain to her, you know, why mommy is doing something different and why you have different rules is a very hard thing for a five-year-old to get her arms oh around. And so I just match whatever she has to do. If she's got to wear a mask, I'll wear a mask too. So she's, she's alone. <laughs> All right. So we always end the podcast by asking our guests for a yes and story and parlance of improvisation. When people are getting together to make something out of nothing, they get nowhere by saying no. And actually they don't get very far by saying yes. We say, you say yes. And you affirm and contribute in order to explore and heighten. Uh, Do you have a yes and story for us? I do. And uh, it's so fitting that we ended up with a mention of my five-year-old because my yes and story goes back to motherhood. It's it's, Mm -hmm. it's a little bit, I I was, you know, really thinking about um, this and it's the only story that really I, that I wanted to tell that made sense here, I think. And so I said no to motherhood for a lot of years and mm-hmm. finally said yes to it and encountered a whole host of challenges with it and then had to had to realize that there were going to be different decisions that I needed to make. And so it was yes to motherhood and I'm going to be open to lots of different paths to setting myself up to get to that point. And so um, I ended up, my uh, Lucy's dad and I adopted her. And so we said yes and then to adoption. And so um, it has really been, um, I just think like out of the billions of people on the planet, she and I happened to find each other somehow. And I don't know how that happened. And I always get teary. I hate sort of yeah. telling it, but um, it was, it's the best sort of yes and decision or moment that I've, that I've had in my life. Oh, that's a great one. The book is called Beating Burnout at Work, Why Teams Hold the Secret to Wellbeing and Resilience. Paula Davis, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. I've had so much fun. Getting the SN is produced by Second City Works and WGM Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumbledare, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.